It's Wednesday, March 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The FDA has authorized the second COVID booster shot for people 50 and older and those 12 and older that have weakened immune systems. The decision was mostly based on data from Israel that shows it could be life-saving for those over 60, but only has marginal benefits for younger people. Carolyn Johnson, science reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the latest and also how the FDA will soon meet to discuss long-term booster strategy for the rest of the population. Next, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed the controversial Parents' Rights in Education bill, known to opponents as the Don't Say Gay bill. One of the key stories that influenced the formation of the bill is a lawsuit by January Littlejohn and her husband against Leon County Schools, where they claim that school officials helped their child transition to a different gender without keeping them informed. The conversation on this will continue as it doesn't go to trial until next year, and for Republicans, they see parental rights as a winning issue for the midterms. Andrew Atterbury, Florida education reporter at Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. At a population level, yes, we expect that this additional booster could save thousands of lives heading into the fall. But beyond that, we're just not clear. And so we don't want to undermine the existing booster campaign. You know, many people, most people have not gotten that first booster. So this is that adequate sort of hedge. If you are eligible and you're over 50, get consider getting that booster. Joining us now is Carolyn Johnson, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. Well, the FDA has authorized a second coronavirus booster shot for people 50 and older and also for those uh, 12 and older that are immunocompromised. There's a lot of interesting stuff surrounding another booster shot, you know, if it's how effective it is and all that. So, Carolyn, tell us a little bit more about the decision by the FDA on this. As a lot of people have been anticipating, a second booster, which would be a fourth shot for most people, was authorized today. And that means that if you're 50 or older, you can probably pretty soon, it may take a while for pharmacies to get updated, but um, go get a fourth shot. And one reason that it's being targeted this way to people 50 and older is because they're really trying to protect people who are at greatest risk of severe illness, hospitalization, and the bad outcomes. This shot isn't intended to like end the pandemic or even, you know, like we're just trying to kind of shore up protection amongst those who are most vulnerable. Yeah, it definitely has shaped up that way. We're just kind of trying to get by. I think you know, vaccine makers are working on uh, a shot that can attack, you know, all coronaviruses. They're, they're looking forward to the future for a lot of that stuff. And this is just kind of getting us by in the meantime. And, and, and you know, they're looking at what's going to happen with this. There's not necessarily an explicit recommendation that people get this. This is just giving some the opportunity. And a lot of it has to do with the way these boosters are working right now. They're really not protecting us, let's say, from another infection. They do give us some more antibodies and all that. But as you mentioned, it's really just for those at risk of severe illness. Well, it's, it's almost such a, such a bifurcated situation. You have some people who just want boosters. They want to kind of perfect their immunity, their personal immunity, and kind of get on with their lives. And those people are just super interested. And I think, you know, if you're younger and you don't have a compromised immune system, you don't have to worry if you've been boosted necessarily. And particularly, I guess, one thing that wasn't really addressed, but has been something experts I've been talking to have been thinking is that if you got, uh, if you were one of the tens of millions of people that got an Omicron infection over the winter surge, 
you know, that's functioning as a boost to your immune system. So you don't need to necessarily be very worried about getting that fourth shot right away or potentially at all. So the longer term booster strategy is still being worked out. And part of this, I know it's unsatisfying to people, but, you know, we just don't know the future. And so we're, we're working with uh, in an information gap. And in that gap, you have to make judgments. So this is a judgment intended to protect people who are at risk from the worst things that can happen. And then next week, the FDA is going to meet and they're going to talk more about kind of a longer term booster strategy, perhaps what we could see in the fall. You know, what even the goalposts might be for like a booster shot? You know, there's a lot of questions we still have to kind of work out because we may switch the vaccine to provide potentially more durable protection. Um, But a lot of these studies are also still ongoing. So I know it's like everyone's kind of waiting for what they should do next. But I think this was clearly targeted to segment of the population. Now, a lot of the information that was used in support of this booster shot, this additional booster shot, Uh, has been limited and mixed. A lot of it comes from information we got from Israel, where they're already doing this fourth booster shot. So tell me a little bit about that, uh, because, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, that fourth shot might not be providing that much more protection than that third shot. So just fill us in on what was happening in Israel with with all this. Our data is super imperfect, so it's really hard to draw conclusions. Every study has flaws, and these are also like really early studies. We haven't necessarily seen them go through all like the rigorous peer review that would be normal before you saw these results. But because of the urgency, we're seeing clearly some Israeli data that shows for people over 60, which is the people they offered fourth shots, that during the Omicron wave there, they saw a protection against death and severe illness. So there's a number of Israeli studies showing that. And of course, there are kind of critiques of them and stuff. But this is a lot of the kind of impetus for today's action. Separately, they also had boosted some healthcare workers in Israel, which are people of all ages. And there is where you saw this more mixed and also potentially transient um, effect of these boosts. So first of all, when you when they extended a four shot to people who weren't necessarily older and at risk, they found, yeah, your antibodies go up, back up kind of like to the third dose level, which is good, but it doesn't protect those people against infection very well. And because those people are at very low risk for uh, severe illness, you know, they all had mild or negligible symptoms. So even if they had three doses or four doses. So, you know, you're there, it becomes more uncertain. You know, there's not nearly an impetus to boost those people. And there's also some data showing that that infection protection erodes very quickly over about a two-month period. So if we're talking about vaccinating ahead of COVID waves, we have to really think about the goals, the practicality of things. Federal health officials have been pretty optimistic so far, I guess, that BA2, though we have to keep our eye on it, may not cause a huge surge. That remains to be seen. But, you know, if we're talking about timing, it gets super complicated because then you're talking about predicting the future. <laughs> right. This uh, action by the FDA, as you mentioned, is very targeted to the those most at risk right now. But it will be interesting to see what that longer term plan is going to be for everybody, for the rest of the population. So we'll keep an eye out. Carolyn Johnson, science reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
In Florida, uh, we not only know that parents have a right to be involved, uh, we insist that parents have a right to be involved. Joining us now is Andrew Atterbury, Florida education reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, let's talk about this uh, Florida bill that just passed. It's been called by opponents the Don't Say Gay Bill. The interesting part about this is that it really had its genesis about two years ago. It didn't originate kind of in the legislature. This kind of stemming uh, comes from a, uh, a lawsuit and a conversation that a mother was having for, with their 13-year-old teen talking about, I guess the teen said, you know, I might be non-binary. And it kind of rolled into what was happening at school. The mother, January, little John said that she felt like they were keeping things from her. The school was and uh, coaching maybe the child into, uh, you know, wanting to change their name, all sorts of stuff that was happening. It kind of has its basis a little bit in this. So if Andrew, if you can help us walk through some of this, just so we can understand the whole thing. That lawsuit, it came up time and time again as the bill, the parental rights education bill, or don't say gay is what it's been called. By the way, this is a side note. Republicans for it absolutely hate that. They hate that name. Uh, I kind of joke around and say it's like the, it's the don't say, don't say gay bill, because if, even if like, if you ask, uh, <laughs> like, if you ask Governor Ron DeSantis, you ask the Speaker Chris Browles in the House, if you ask him a question and say, don't say gay, they'll pretty much cut you off right there and say, and you, I've seen the governor do this multiple times, so cut him off and say, does it, does it say that in the bill? Does it say don't say yeah. gay? So that is something that's it's really, that is like a, just a perfect example of how this is such a flashpoint. Even that name has just caused such a, a big issue. Uh, but, but back to your question. So the lawsuit that is involved with, uh, with Ms., Mrs. January Littlejohn, it kept coming up as this bill uh, arose in the legislature for each hearing. And, and Mrs. Littlejohn also testified as well and told her story. It sounded like it would be, it was almost like the perfect example of, of why this bill would, would be needed, according to Republicans. And after session, I sat down and actually had more time to read into these lawsuits and, and learn more about them. And it, and it really is an example for everything that Republicans in Florida are trying to do as far as like parental rights. If you read the lawsuit, the, the parents claim that, they, like you said, they're basically kept in the dark about decisions involving their child's gender identity and that like some of these decisions were made behind their back and they didn't get told about it. And at the center of that as well are these local student support guides that have, that have some rules in them that the parents didn't like and these, the lawyers also have targeted. And then on top of that, lawmakers also learned about these rules and didn't like them. And that directly, it sounds like that directly is what led to them crafting the legislation as it as it's presented now it actually has it gets pretty complicated with all that's going on and you know why things progress they did and you, you did mention those guides that kind of talk about how teachers should handle these conversations with students and really it seems like on the face of it you know guides to help teachers just really navigate these complicated sensitive issues with students uh you know some of the stuff that said you shouldn't out the child to their parents uh, mm -hmm. for fear of retaliation from the parents you just don't know how they're going to react certain things like that so in that sense it does seem like you're keeping the conversation away from the parents so tell us a little bit about that because that that figures in pretty heavily like you mentioned that hits, that hits on a point that democrats made throughout the process of this bill coming up they argued that not all parents would be supportive of their children if they came out as either non-binary or gay or anything else. And they argue that if you do this, then you will out some kids to their parents and it might put them in a very bad situation. Like some of these guys even mentioned, I think one guy even says, if you out them, you could literally make them homeless, which is a point that the Democrats made throughout session. And I think data would, would show that, that that is possible, that could happen. But at the same time, 
in Florida under Republicans, including Governor DeSantis, that just does not fly with their stance on parental rights. Right now in Florida, Republicans, and when it comes to education, they're, they're putting that in the front. Everything is about parental rights, giving parents the power to help their kids, to know what's going on in education, whether it's this bill, the parental rights education or don't say gay bill. There was a bill about transparency in what's, what kids are reading in school, what books are available in school, restricted, trying to get more attention on that. There was a, a bill restricting what, how, how race can be taught, how race can be discussed in like uh, bias trainings from, from employers. So it all kind of fits in with trying to figure out how you can give more authority to parents yeah. and also kind of keep a closer eye on what kids are learning. Yeah, for I mean, Republicans see this as a winning issue, especially coming up into the midterms. You know, we had the governor's race in Virginia. A parents' rights in schools was was a huge issue then, and uh, the Republican won in that race. So they see this as something that they can really hang their hat on. And uh, and and you know, the bill is titled "Parental Rights and Education." So what does the bill do specifically? Because it talks it has to do with uh, a lot with uh, kindergarten through third graders. And, that, and that's the thing. This bill has, I think, has two real, real important provisions. And one of them has gotten way more attention than the other. And that's the point you touched on. It says that schools can't teach, they can't, you know, they can't have lessons around gender identity and sexual orientation for kindergarten or third grade. People have been really upset by that. And it's been a really divisive thing because if you, if you just look at the language, you probably say, okay, that seems pretty standard. Of course, though, what a lot of people argue is that this isn't being taught in schools now anyway. So the bill goes further to say that uh, you can't teach about gender or identity or sexual orientation above third grade uh, unless it's like age appropriate, which, which is another kind of vague term in the bill that's given people a lot of heartburn. They think that the way that it's written in that language specifically would have like a chilling effect on people uh, mentioning anything about their families if they were LGBTQ or even like they're telling their own stories about that kind of thing. So that has given a lot of people issue. But of course, Republicans point to the, the language that seems, if you just break the language down by itself, it seems pretty non-controversial. That's their big point is that how can you say this is bad? Like, and they try to flip any, any defense or any argument, they try to flip it right back on people trying to make it. Let's talk a little bit more about January Little John and, and her lawsuit against the school district in there and and what was happening what was happening with their specific thing because uh, I guess they came to find out later that uh, I guess some administrators counselors or whatever were meeting with the child for some weeks trying to talk to them more about how they felt and uh, you know January the mother even emailed uh, one of the child's math teachers telling them I don't want them to. Uh, change their name because that was one of the things that the child wanted to do, change their name to uh, more to reflect more how they felt. So let's talk about some more specifics about, uh, about, that, about that case. Sure. And, and it goes back to parental rights. In this case, the, the parents, they believed that it was their right. And at this point, they, they were saying, like you said, they, they weren't totally on board yet with, with changing, with the student changing their name. This was a 13 year old at the time in the middle school, changing their name and perhaps changing their gender identity. And they, they talked about it at home and they talked about it going into like the next school year. And they said that they didn't want them to change all that stuff officially at school. They weren't, they weren't sure about it in the lawsuits, what they said. But then after, after school one day, they had a conversation and learned that there was a, like a, a gender transition plan they were working on for the students uh, that the parents had no, had no idea about. And that is, the crux of that case, and it's, it's all tied back to these uh, support plans, but there's another case that um, the same lawyer 
is working on in Clay County, which is a, which is a similar, almost not, not exactly the same, but a, but a similar thing where parents were, according to these lawsuits, kept in the dark about these inf- these nuggets of information that about their child's gender identity. So, and there's also and so there are also similar lawsuits in other states as well. So this is something that that are, you're starting to see more and more in the courts. People claiming that decisions about like gender orientation and identity are being made without parents really knowing and that schools are kind of unilaterally stepping in as like de facto parents or as one lawmaker said he tried in arguing in favor of the bill he said you know children aren't wards of the state basically you know parents are the ones that need to have these rights not us i mean it's a a very complicated issue and and it's going to be going on for some time the trial for this specific lawsuit from the little johns isn't even going to happen until next year. So the conversation will be ongoing through all of this. And I know, uh, you know, the child is a minor. They're obviously shielded in a lot of the stuff. Do we have any sense of if this was helpful to the child, these conversations that they were having with with the school? There's so many things that are unknown and so many moving parts. And one thing that was also interesting about this Leon case, like you said, the facts are going to be found out through courts, not anytime soon though, but even the school district. The school districts and, and people who are embattled in, in lawsuits they don't usually want to comment on them. But even the school district yesterday, they even they, they kind of pushed back on what, what on the lawsuit what it said, and they said that the the claims in the lawsuit aren't exactly how things went down. So they're they're really they kind of they're trying to defend themselves and say this isn't being painted 100 percent accurately in in this lawsuit. So it's gonna be really interesting. It doesn't sound like I mean they, so the, the school district did try to get it thrown out, but it, it didn't work. So this is going to be going to trial at some point unless unless they settle. Like so, what they said is that. They suggested that the parents sent emails that said, well, you know, you guys can take the lead on this or do whatever you think is best, according to these emails that the, the school district said. So it kind of makes us even more tangled. Just the last thing on, on all of this, too, because, uh, you know, opponents of this bill say that it all boils down to transgender students and, and kind of wiping this whole thing clean. Obviously, in this case, the, with the Little Johns, the, the child was saying, you know, they might be non-binary, wanted to change their name and all that. But uh, opponents of this say it all boils down to uh, transgender rights. I mentioned this earlier, how this all stuff kind of ties together. Like, for instance, the, the book, uh, the, the, the another bill that Florida lawmakers passed this year and that was recently signed by the governor is, like I mentioned earlier, to take a, a harder look at what students have, what books they're allowed to read and what books are in the libraries and classrooms. And a lot of the books that lawmakers and the governor cite as being why this bill is necessary are books involving gender identity uh, and and transgender issues specifically. So you look at that and then you pair it with this bill and people in the LGBTQ community are really upset by that. They think that it's a, it's a larger attack. And so when people try to flip it and say, well, you know, this language is really not that harsh, people argue, well, it's not about that. It's the message you're sending and that you're trying to basically attack a whole subset of the, of the population through legislation like this. So that's, that really shows why it's so divisive. It's, it's just got so many layers. Andrew Atterbury, Florida education reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>